Hello. Thanks for listening to the podcast for the Baptist Church of Hadley, where our mission is to exalt God, encourage Christians, and engage the world. After the message, there will be some information on how to contact us. I've titled the message for today, Christ the Compassionate Shepherd. Christ the Compassionate Shepherd. We're looking at 14 verses here. It really is one narrative uh, that we'll be looking at, and it's one that you know well. Uh, But I wonder if for those of us who know this story very well, if we've ever correctly identified why it's in our Bible and what the significance of it is for us today. Um, There are kind of whips and whims, if you will, of of leadership philosophy in the world. And and as society kind of changes and evolves, uh, the, the methods that people adopt to lead others, change too. And uh, certainly, um, lately, the movement has been from strong leadership and uh, kind of authoritarian leadership towards a more gentle style of leadership. And if you keep up at all with leadership literature, um, those of you who serve in positions of leadership or go to leadership conferences, you probably noticed this shift lately. Uh, I was shown this week by a professor of mine, a, a picture. I never really considered this. Um, so if you think about shepherding, we often think of the image of shepherd, and the image of shepherd is in the title for today, and uh, it's an image that's through Scripture. Shepherding has changed through times. I was sent a picture by this professor of uh, a modern-day shepherd in the western U.S., and he's, uh, he's dressed up just like you'd think a cowboy, cowboy hat. He's on a horse, And he's behind a herd of sheep, driving them along, just the way that you would think of them driving cattle. But when we think of shepherds in Scripture, that style of leadership was very different. In Scripture, the shepherd uh, cared for his sheep. The sheep trusted that shepherd. And when he would call them, they would follow. And that's the type of shepherding that Christ demonstrates. And we're going to see in this familiar story... Uh, an example of Christ as a compassionate shepherd and what that means for us today. So here's the big idea, and then we'll read the text. So if you don't take anything else away, here's what this text is about. Following Christ's example, we should serve others selflessly, compassionately, and obediently. Let's look together at these several verses. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. We'll pause there just for a second. Now, our our narrative from last week about the death of John the Baptist, it serves as a, a parenthesis in this story. But what happened before the death of John the Baptist in Mark's Gospel? The disciples were sent out on their test drive. They were sent out uh, by twos to take the message of the gospel. Remember, go, proclaim, fight, minister. And now they return to Jesus, verse 31. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. And they departed into a desert place by ship privately. And the people saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran afoot thither out of all cities, and outwent them, and came together unto him. 
And Jesus, when He came out, that is, came out of the ship, saw much people. And He was moved with compassion toward them because they were as sheep not having a shepherd. And He began to teach them many things. And when the day was now far spent, His disciples came unto Him and said, This is a desert place, and now the time is far past. Send them away, that they may go into the country round about and into the villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. And He answered and said unto them, Give ye them to eat. And they say unto him, Shall we go and buy two hundred pennyworth of bread and give them to eat? And he saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? Go and see. And when they knew, they say five and two fishes. And he commanded them to make all sit down by companies upon the green grass. And they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed and brake the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fishes divided he among them all. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments and of the fishes. And they that did eat of the loaves were about 5,000 men. Let's take a moment. We'll ask God to, to open his word to us. Father, we're so thankful for this story of Jesus and the fact that we see him shepherding and we see an example of the compassion that should characterize us as followers of Christ. Lord, would our whole selves be changed? Not just that we would think rightly of others, but that we would feel for them as Jesus feels for us. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to take this story in pieces, which I think is probably the right thing to do. There are definite movements in this story. And the first piece of this story we see in verses 30 through 32, the shepherds rest. Look back at verse 30. The apostles, they gather themselves to Jesus and they tell him all things. The interesting thing is, uh, I don't know of any account where we know how it went. <laughs> That's not important to Mark, certainly, uh, how it went. They went out. They did what Jesus told them to do. They came back. And they come and they tell him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest for a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. And they departed into a desert place by ship privately. So the, the disciples, they return from their mission, and uh, here Mark calls them, the only time that I know of, he calls them apostles. He uses the word apost apostolos of them, not in the sense of they would have the office of apostle eventually, but in the sense of they were sent out on a mission. They were sent ones. They were messengers. So they return, and, and remember their mission was to go to people that they did not know, to proclaim the message of Christ, the message being repent. The kingdom of God is here. And they were called to fight. The, as, the, as the disciples are going out, they're casting out demons. They're engaged in spiritual warfare. They understand that their weapons are not carnal, but mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. And they're armed with the armor, which is not a physical armor. <laughs> in fact, they're told to take nothing of the sort. They're armed with the armor of God the armor that is provided only by the Holy Spirit. And they wield as their weapon the Word of Christ. And they're ministering. They're showing love to others. They're healing the sick in compassion and caring for their needs. Which is a good place for us to pause and just be reminded from two weeks ago of our challenge. How's it going? I challenge us to go, proclaim, fight, minister. Do you have all four of those components characterizing your life? 
I think we need to renew ourselves. And, and that last word, minister, is really the focus of the passage today. So if you're looking to sharpen your love for others and your compassion for others, that's what we'll be talking about as we go through this passage. But you notice that when, when the disciples return to Jesus, he, he recognizes as a good shepherd that these faithful servants need to rest. And we've, we've talked about this already in Mark, but rest is a godly thing to do. Rest is a godly thing to do. Jesus recognized that these men, they'd, they'd gone out, they'd been poured out, they'd, they'd, they'd laid it all on the line and, and gone to villages where they were rejected and, and preached and ministered and, and people wouldn't leave them alone. We even see in this passage that they don't even have the time to eat because people are so desperately looking for their help. Jesus recognized their need to rest. And so he takes them, he invites them into a ship to depart from the busyness and to step away to be refreshed. This is a spiritual thing to do. Rest is a spiritual thing to do. Jesus invites you too to rest. To rest when it is warranted. And when we come apart and meet on Sundays, it is meant to be a time of rest. And I want to revisit the idea that sometimes Sundays don't feel like a day of rest. And those of you especially who bring kids to church on Sunday know how unrestful Sunday can feel. Um, I just want to just briefly say, there are things you can do ahead of time to make Sunday as restful as it can be. Sometimes it takes a little extra work on Saturday to make Sunday a day of rest. But what a wonderful thing to follow Christ's instruction and his example of resting, of being refreshed and renewed. But notice that the rest isn't just any rest. It's not just taking a nap. It's resting in Christ. Resting in Christ. This is where the disciples found their rest. They depart to be with and fellowship with Christ and be renewed. When we fail to rest, sometimes the root cause of that failure is our pride. Pride that says, I don't need to rest. I'll just continue on and work myself to the bone. And that's a commendable thing to do. Even at the expense of my spiritual walk and my attitude towards my family, I don't need to rest. When we fail to rest, we're saying, everything depends on me. If I don't get it all done, we're sunk. As though God has no part in helping us fulfill the duties He's called us to. No, rest is a humble, dependent thing to do. Jesus calls His disciples apart to rest. And honestly, and I have to be honest, it's ironic that I'm speaking to you about rest today because I haven't really taking a day of rest for myself in, in a little over two weeks. And I kind of brought that on myself by taking on some, some uh, um, professional development type of things. And I bit off a little more than I could chew. And I'm writing this message late at night and thinking, man, <laughs> I needed this. Sometimes resting is the most spiritual, obedient, dependent thing a person can do. Jesus says to his disciples, come apart to the desert place and rest a while. And not just rest, but rest in Christ. 
But unfortunately in the story, and the rest is not the main point of this story, you probably already know that because it's not the part we talk about as much. Because Jesus and the disciples' rest was interrupted. They get into the ship and they depart and the people take notice. Look at verse 33. And the people saw them departing and many knew him and ran afoot thither out of all the cities and outwent them and came together unto him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people and was moved with compassion toward them because they were as sheep, not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Here's, this, here's the second section of this story. We see the shepherd's selfless compassion. And this is the main point. This is the main point of why this story is in Mark's gospel. We see Jesus and his disciples, they, they go away for rest and the people know where they're going. I don't know how they found out. Maybe one of the disciples told them, hey, we're going across. We don't even know where they went. Mark doesn't tell us. They obviously got out on Galilee and went somewhere. We don't even know where they went. Somewhere that was wilderness. But somebody in the crowd knew where they went, got everybody together. Hey, I know where they're going to be. So as the ship is making its way, seems pretty slowly across the sea and they're taking their time, it's leisurely. The people are making their way around to where they're going and meet them there. And you would think, if that were me, I would be kind of frustrated. <laughs> like, that you knew that I was going away to get a break. You knew that I was going to rest and you still followed me here. That's pretty inconsiderate. But as we look at Jesus' reaction, we understand why this whole story is included and what is the point. Jesus, he sees the people. He's moved with compassion. Because they are a sheep without a shepherd. Let's, let's take that in pieces. First of all, Jesus saw the people. They, they arrive on the shore to which they're going. Jesus comes out of the ship and there they are. Thousands. Thousands. Probably best estimates I've seen. Somewhere between ten and 15,000 people have all kind of moved around, which is really significant considering that many of the cities that Jesus uh, had been ministering in many of the villages were not more than a few thousand of their own. So this is a huge majority of the people that had heard Jesus speak have all decided, hey, we're going to take the day and we're going to go hear Jesus on the other side of the lake. And Jesus, he comes out and he sees the people. As I ponder on Jesus looking out from the ship on this crowd of people, I'm reminded that Jesus sees our needs too. There is not a care that you have that he does not know. Before he ascended into heaven, Jesus promised us that he would be with us to the end of the age. And he fulfills that promise because his spirit is present and indwelling in those who believe. He sees us. And praise the Lord that he sees us. I never have to feel alone. I never have to, feel, uh, I never have to wonder if Jesus cares because he's with me and he knows me. But as I consider how Jesus saw others, I wonder if I see others too. Jesus could have been focused on his desires. He could have been focused on his need for rest. He could have been focused on his vacation plans. He could have overlooked these persistent, faithless, smelly, legalistic masses who kept following everywhere. But instead, Jesus 
saw them, he looked on their need. I tell you, this is my fatal flaw because I am naturally oblivious to what's going on with other people. And, and sometimes I chalked it up to I'm a man, so I don't get social cues, you know, the way that my wife does. She picks up on things that I miss. But Jesus saw their needs. I tell you what, and, and this is me talking about how this phrase spoke to me. Whenever I run into somebody that I know at the grocery store, they always see me first every single time. And many people in this room, you have seen me at the grocery store, and I'm not ignoring you. I did not see you. And you say, oh, that's kind of funny. That's a personality quirk. It's actually, I think it's a problem. I get so focused on me. I get so focused on what I'm doing and my to-do list and the amount of time I have to get things done. And, and I'm not looking at others. In the book of Philippians, Paul admonished us, look not every man on his own things, but look every man on the things of others. That's what Jesus did. He could have been all concerned about what he needed and what he wanted and his disciples, but he looked on the people and when he looked, he saw them. He saw them to their needs. Do we see people as Jesus did? But notice when he saw the people, notice his, his predilection towards them, his attitude towards them. Because when he saw the people, he saw them in a certain way, he was moved with compassion toward them. And we're going to talk about a Greek word, and I try to limit the number of Greek words that I talk about. We're going to talk about a Greek word for a minute because it helps us know what Jesus is doing here and how we should do it. The word for compassion is a great word. It's splunknitzomai. Say, that is, that is a very strange word. It is a strange word because it refers to a strange concept. It's, it's the verb form of the word splunkna. Another funny word. Also, the English transliteration is spelled funny. You probably can't guess how it's spelled. But splankna is the word. What is a splankna? It's your gut. It's your gut. What happened is when Jesus saw the people, he felt for them in his gut. It was a deep emotional longing for their needs to be met. It wasn't a begrudging decision for their needs to be met. It wasn't even a principal priority for their needs to be met. He felt for them in his very bowels. He felt for the people. He feels that way about you too. When he sees your needs and when he sees your sin and when he sees your, your, your difficulties and your trials, he feels it in his gut for you. And so much more, as you are in Christ, as many of these followers were not, how much more will he feel for us as children of God, as joint heirs with Christ? What an encouragement. But the challenge comes again as we strive to be like Christ. Do I feel that for others too? Do I feel that for others too? Do I have a compassion that comes from my deepest parts? Do I not just choose to care for people, and we've talked a lot about that, that's an important thing to do, but do I feel for them? 
This is actually more than love. Compassion is more than love. It comes from so deep within us. And you say, Pastor, I want to. I want to feel for people. I, I, I have a desire to, to develop in my own gut, in my own splunkta, a, a compassion for others' needs. But I don't know how. I don't know how. Well, we're going to take just a minute to explore this picture that we have in this word compassion and how the Bible tells us we can develop a gut for other people. Okay? So let me, let me try to explain this to you. I, I can't control these feelings very well. I can't control what happens in, in, in my bowels. And even Paul used this expression, didn't he? He would often talk about how he, he felt in his bowels, and you'll have to excuse the expression, but he felt in his deepest part for people. And he talked about that we are called to have bowels of compassion and bowels of mercies. Are you familiar with these expressions in the epistles? But how do I develop that? I'll point your attention to an important verse, Romans 12.2. Let's turn there together. I want to show it to you. Romans 12.2. How can I be changed even in my feelings, in my instincts? How can I, how can I be changed at the most base, fleshly part of my inner person? How can I be changed? Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Let's begin reading in verse 1, actually, because there's an important word that's going to help us interpret verse 2. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your, here's an important word that's going to help direct the rest of our discussion, bodies. The word is soma, or your whole person, every part of you. He says, I, I beseech you that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service or worship. But then look at verse 2. How do we do this? How do I have my whole person not just my mind and not just my body, but, but every part of me, even my emotions. How do I have my whole person sacrificed as a, as an, a living sacrifice to God? Look at verse 2. He's going to clarify for us. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You say, I, I really struggle with how to change how I feel about things in my gut, in my instincts, in my flesh. I really struggle to, 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 to change and, and feel the way that Jesus felt. Well, well, Paul says that the essential first step is the renewing of our mind. The renewing of our mind. Be transformed. Have your soma, your whole person, transformed by the renewing of your mind. Proverbs 23, 7 uh, kind of says a similar thing. As a man thinks in his heart, and don't let the word heart mess you up because we're talking about thoughts. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. If you want to be moved like Jesus, if you want to have compassion for other people, a great and possibly necessary first step is to have your mind changed. How do I do that? 
Let me give you some practical suggestions. First of all, discipline yourself to pray for others. Do you know that when we pray for people, our minds are changed? There is a renewing process that happens in the process of prayer. And if you've been coming on Wednesday nights, you know I've talked several times about how the fact that prayer is much less about changing God than it is about changing me. Changing my mind and my view and seeing people and the world and circumstances the way that God sees them. Pray for those you know. Pray for those you don't know. Pray for their physical needs, but more than that, pray for their spiritual needs. Pray not until you finish your list, but pray until you are convinced in your heart and your gut that their good is better than your good. Sacrifice for others. That's a good way to have your mind transformed. When we serve others sacrificially, our actions inform our thinking, and our thinking informs our priorities, and our priorities inform our feeling. And and don't think that these practical pieces of advice negate the fact that it is God who does the work in us to transform us. Though there are steps you can take to draw near to God, He is the only one who can change not just your mind, but your heart and your gut too. He's the one who transforms. So here, the battle plan to develop not just a mind for people, not just a heart for people, but a whole self that feels for the needs of others. Meditate on the Gospel. Jesus died for all mankind. Every person I pass is a soul for whom Jesus died. Pray for the good of others. Serve your brothers sacrificially. And in this way, and let me put it the way C.S. Lewis puts it. C.S. Lewis says, the, the head rules the belly through the chest. As I rightly think of others, as, as God transforms my mind, The affections of my heart will be changed and my very instinctual feelings towards them will follow. If we would have a a splankna of compassion for others, if we would have bowels of mercy and compassion for others, the first step is a renewing of our mind. The second step is a reordering of our affections. And it will result in a change of our feelings. Jesus saw the people. He was moved with compassion towards them. But notice why he was moved. What was so moving to Jesus? Because they were as sheep not having a shepherd. He identified their ultimate need was to be led by a good shepherd. You think, At this time, the Jews did have a king, and he's a king we talked about at length uh, last week. The the Jewish people did not recognize Herod Antipas as their king, but he was placed as their king, and we looked last week at his character. He was not a shepherd for God's people, not even close. He's very selfish, self-gratifying. He was under the control of a foreign power. Jesus looks on these people He sees how lost they are. He sees that they need a shepherd. They needed a leader who would reveal God to them, who could provide for their spiritual needs. And notice the thing Jesus does to shepherd the people. He's moved with compassion on them. They're sheep without a shepherd. And what did he do? He taught them. He taught them. 
he realized that their ultimate need was to be shown God. To be shown God. This is the theme of, if we were to go over to John's whole gospel, his whole theme is that Jesus revealed to us God, the Father. Jesus is this shepherd. He's characterized by his compassion. And we should praise him as our shepherd. Let us sing with renewed conviction, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Much we need thy tender care. Let us read with renewed vitality, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Let us pray with renewed vigor. Jesus, lead me with your compassionate rod and staff. Our Christ is a good shepherd. Praise Him. Love Him. Follow Him. Submit to Him. In this story, we we witnessed the shepherd's rest. What an example of Him as a good shepherd. We saw the shepherd's compassion And really, the rest of this story, the part of the story you learned most vigorously in Sunday school as a child, the rest of this story is an illustration of the compassion of our shepherd. And I'll show you how Mark very clearly paints this picture because there's some verbiage here that brings us back to our shepherd. The the third section of this story I titled, The Shepherd's Baffling Instructions. Shepherds baffling instructions. Look at verse 35. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him and said, This is a desert place, and now the time is far past. Send them away that they may go into the country round about and into the villages and buy themselves bread. They're saying, We have nothing to eat. Uh, We need to call it off right now. That's enough teaching for one day. Send them out. They can go get dinner and they can come find us tomorrow. And Jesus says, Give ye them to eat. How? The disciples didn't even have food for themselves. And they say unto him, Shall we go and buy 200 penny worth of bread? There is pretty much no way they had that much money. 200 penny worth, it's almost a year's wages. Okay? Um, So they're like, How are we supposed to even go buy that much food for people? There's a highlight here that Mark gives us. And actually, this little discussion. It's unique to Mark of the synoptic Gospels. He's the only one who who records this much of the back and forth between Jesus and the disciples. And this back and forth is really meant to highlight the fact that with man, this was an impossible task. It could not be done. Jesus says, Give ye them to eat. And they say unto him, Shall we go and buy two hundred penny worth of bread and give them to eat? And he saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? Go and see. And when they knew, they say, Five and two fishes. And he commanded them to make all sit down by companies upon the green grass. And they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. So Jesus, after affirming the impossibility of feeding these thousands of people, instead of saying, okay, then we're done for today, everybody can go and buy their food, he says, line everybody up. Actually group them together. You know, make ranks of fifties and ranks of hundreds and, and, and make sure that everybody is in their section." And the disciples, I'm sure, are baffled. Why? We're wasting a lot of time. We're, we're running out of daylight here. People are just getting hungrier. Why are, we, why are we splitting them up? And honestly, I could not tell you with great specificity or great surety why. <laughs> I, I really 
The why is not 100% certain to me. Other than that, it seems to be an image for us of shepherding. He herds the people into these groups like sheep. Mark already used the word shepherd to describe what Jesus is doing here just a few verses ago. But the disciples, they're they're, they're thinking of this command from Jesus and, and, and he tells them to do something that makes no human sense. Why do they need to be divided up like this? And, and I think sometimes when we look at our commands from our shepherd and we look at his leadership, we say the same thing. That doesn't make sense to me. If it were up to me, I wouldn't do it this way. Well, the fact is, it's not up to you. <laughs> he is the shepherd. We submit ourselves to his instruction. And notice here, why does Mark say this? Notice that he says that they were sat down on the green grass. Okay? Unless you realize that this is all a picture of Jesus as a good shepherd. Does it take you back to Psalm 23? He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. Mark stops to note that this wilderness place was a beautiful, lush, green pasture. And Jesus had brought the sheep here to be fed. The disciples, they, they follow the instruction, they, they separate the people, and, and the lesson we learn is follow your shepherd even when you think you know better. I understand, a person without faith listening to this message would say, that's religious manipulation. How dare you tell people to do things that don't make sense? It's not religious manipulation, it's humility before a Christ who knows better than I do. And I have to do this too. I'm not telling you follow blindly. I'm saying we are all following Christ's instructions when they make sense to us and when they don't. Because he knows better. The shepherd knows better than the sheep. And I tell you what, every time a sheep thinks he knows better than the shepherd, it doesn't end well for the sheep. So in this story, we see the shepherd's rest, his compassion, his command, and finally, the shepherd's miracle. And this is where it all comes together. Verse 41, And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed and break the loaves and gave them to his disciples and set before them. And the two fishes he divided among them all. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up two baskets full of the fragments and of the fishes. And they that did eat of the loaves were about 5,000 men. Mark is a good writer and he waits until the very end to tell us the enormity of the miracle that's just happened. And in other Gospels, it's clarified, in case it wasn't clear to you from Mark, that this is 5,000 men beside the women and children who were present, which is where we get the estimate of somewhere between 10 and 15,000 people who are sitting before Christ, a stadium full of people that Jesus miraculously feeds. Several commentators noted how this story reminds them of God's shepherding of his people in the wilderness as they were traveling from Egypt to the promised land. And what did God do for them? He provided miraculous bread from heaven. And it just goes to show that consistently through Scripture, God shows himself to be a good shepherd. Look at this miracle. As we look at how it all worked out, it turns out that 
Jesus did have a plan, and it was better than the disciples' plan. Jesus did care for the sheep, both their hearts and their bodies. It turns out Jesus was powerful enough to care about every follower. It turns out we do best to submit to his care and his command. Jesus is a good shepherd. He calls you to rest in him, to trust in him, to obey him. And we can do all of that because we are confident that he is moved not just in his heart, but in his gut. His instinct is to be moved for our needs. By his nature, he loves us and has compassion on us. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this assurance of our good shepherd. And that though his ultimate purpose is the glory of God, that glory is found when he shows compassion on us. Lord, we we do not deserve a compassionate Savior. We do not deserve the love of our God. In fact, we deserve the opposite. But we praise you that we feel that compassion every time we think of Christ's mercy and grace for our sins. Every time we think of the, the temporal provisions that you have provided for us day in and day out. And Lord, help us never to lose sight of the fact that we serve a good and compassionate shepherd. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the podcast for the Baptist Church of Hadley. If you have any questions about what you heard today or would like to see the video of this message, please contact us at tbchadley.org. If you live near the communities of Davison and Lapeer in southeast Michigan, we invite you to come visit us. We would love to see you in person at our church.